The Triathlon Show 292. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show. The podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Richard Blagro. Richard has a PhD in exercise physiology. He's a lecturer and program leader at Loughborough University. He's the co-editor of the newly released book, The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running. And he has extensive experience in both academia and in applied work in strength and conditioning with middle and long distance running. Uh, His own background as an athlete is as a middle distance runner. We'll talk about, uh, in particular, strength and conditioning for endurance athletes with Richard, but also some other bits and pieces. Before we get into that interview, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Roka. Roka are the leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. In those latter categories, the eyewear segment of Roka's products, I want to mention some of the features that uh, that they have to offer, whether we're talking about prescription glasses or normal regular sunglasses. They all have ultra lightweight frames that you will barely feel on your face, adjustable features so that you can make the, the frames match your face perfectly. They never slip thanks to the Geeko anti-slip technology. On the website during the purchasing process, Roka has a virtual try-on option so you can see what the glasses will look like on you. And they also have an online vision test for prescription glasses so you can update your prescription in as little as 15 minutes from the comfort of your own home. You can also apply blue light blocking coating to your lenses uh, for any glasses. Prescription glasses are only available in the US, but for people elsewhere, Roka have a fantastic lineup of non-prescription sunglasses from casual to performance that you can check out. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. The Senate Swim Trainer is an inflatable swim bench that you can use to practice stamina, strength and technique even when you might not have time for a full-on pool session or open water session, or if they happen to be closed for some reason, like a pandemic. Uh, The swim bench can be inflated and deflated, so you can store it really nice and easy. The price point is also great, as the swim trainer costs around the same as a pair of running shoes. And uh, the swim trainer allows you to practice things like core activation due to the instability element of it being inflatable and getting in a proper high elbow catch position due to the perfectly designed height of the swim bench. You can get 20% off your order of the Senate Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And just one quick request before the interview as well. If you are a long-time listener and you're enjoying the podcast and you haven't yet left a rating and a review for the podcast, please do that on wherever you get your podcasts and can rate and review them. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anything goes. Uh, but uh, if you do that, that really helps out the show and keeps it sustainable for the long term. So your help is much appreciated. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Richard Blagro. Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Richard Blagro. Uh, welcome to the show, Richard. How are you? Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation to come speak today. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really well, thank you. 
Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Why don't you start by just introducing yourself and uh, your background to the audience so they know a bit more about who you are and, and your, your role in endurance sports? Yeah, sure. So um, at the moment, I'm a lecturer in physiology and the program leader for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at Loughborough University, uh, which is in the UK. Um, I've been working in higher education for about 13 years now. Um, before Loughborough, I was working at a university called Birmingham City University, uh, where I was lecturing in sport and exercise science. And prior to that, I spent eight and a half years as a lecturer in strength and conditioning at, at St. Mary's University. Um, but alongside all of these academic roles, I've always been heavily involved with with strength and conditioning coaching. Um in the early days, it was across quite a few different sports, which included triathlon, um, some team sports, and a lot of work with middle and long distance runners. But I guess kind of over the years, because of my own background in middle distance running, I've kind of specialised a little bit in, in work with middle and long distance runners. Um, I did my PhD uh, about six years ago now in the area of strength training for youth distance runners. And I've tried to carry on uh, some of that research. So at the moment, I'm largely looking at how we can try and optimise performance um, in runners and try and reduce risk of overuse injury. Perfect. That's that's a great background. And uh, and you also have a background in rowing. You mentioned to me before the interview as well. Yeah. So switching from running to, to <clears throat> rowing there. Yeah, I... Um, I started out as a runner and I competed at a reasonable level, I guess. Um, <clears throat> I ran, I think, one one fifty two for eight hundred meters, and yeah, that used to get me into sort of national level competitions as a as a junior runner. Um, but I just had a succession of injuries, and I guess that was partly the reason why I started to get interested in strength and conditioning because I wanted to do um, some exercises and some non running based activities to try and offset the risk of getting these injuries again. Um, but yeah, when I was, I think about 21 years old, I actually switched sports completely to rowing, um, got picked up by, um, a talent identification coach and yeah, I, I achieved more success in rowing than I did in running probably because I'm, I'm quite tall. Um, and so I was sort of naturally more geared towards, um, the sport of rowing. Um, but I've always enjoyed running a little bit more and it's always been my passion and a lot of my friends are still, are still runners. Um, so I kind of gravitated back towards running when um, I retired from rowing. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll spend a lot of time talking about strength and conditioning uh, in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you a bit about a new book that you have been the, the co-editor of, which is uh, The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running. Can you tell us a little bit more about mm. the book and uh, how it came about? Yeah, sure. So... Um, the idea for the book came about in, I think it was about 2018, not too long after I finished my PhD, um, mainly because I kind of wanted to get my teeth stuck into a, a sort of quite new project, like something a little bit different. And I was very aware through the contacts that I've got in the coaching world and in sports science that, particularly in the distance running community, there's quite a lot of poor practice going on, um, which definitely isn't the fault of, of runners or even coaches but mainly because of sort of miscommunication of science or just, I guess, companies that sort of make claims about different products or maybe training strategies that haven't got very much scientific basis or, or evidence. Um, and I think like a lot of people, I'm, I'm on a lot of Facebook running groups and I'm quite active on Twitter and things like this. And you see 
messages being put out that are just either incorrect or a little bit inappropriate. And so, yeah, I spoke to a few colleagues and I was kind of very aware that there wasn't really any textbook around, or at least a a new and recent textbook, which sort of distills and addresses a lot of different topics within the science of of distance running um, that was fairly understandable for coaches and runners. Um, And I think I'm in quite a lucky position because over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, I've worked with a lot of different coaches and sports science practitioners from the running world. Um, including a lot, including some that have worked with um, very high-level elite distance runners. So I've got a kind of bit of a, of a network um, that I can call upon to um, to write chapters in in a book like this. So I started out I started out down this avenue and decided that I was going to put this proposal together. Um, a publisher really liked it, and and then yeah, three three years later, the the book's been published, and we've got I think twenty one chapters. 36 different authors that I would consider all world leaders within their own area. And it's, um, yeah, it's a fantastic resource, I think, for, for coaches and, and distance runners just to learn about the science and practice of middle and long distance running. Yeah, no, that, that sounds fantastic. Uh, can you just give a, a few examples of what some of those <laughs> false claims or poor practices that, uh, that, you, uh, that you mentioned, a couple of examples of what that might be? Yeah, I think there's, there's there's a lot said these days about like a kind of, I put in inverted commas, a, a correct running technique, um, like the way P, everybody should be running, um, which based upon what we know in the scientific literature doesn't seem to be the case. Um, in my own area of, of strength training, there's a lot of myths around um, associated with what strength training does to the body, um, like what types of repetitions and sets and exercises are, are the most appropriate. Um, and I think the other big area these days is is recovery strategies, that there's a lot of gadgets and techniques that are available on the market that are, are, are marketed very, very well, but they don't necessarily work particularly well. Um, and I think just doing the basics of um, associated with recovery is what a lot of runners actually miss. And so therefore, that can often lead to um, to not adapting properly, picking up injuries and niggles. And just not optimizing the, the training stimulus that, um, that 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 they're undertaking. Yeah, that, those are great examples. Uh, who, who is the author of the recovery chapter, by the way? Um, that was Glenn, It was led by Glyn Howitson, who's a professor up at Northumbria University, and Tom Clifford, who's a um, an exercise a sport and exercise nutritionist who works at Loughborough with me, actually. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if it might be Dr. Shona Halson from the Australian Institute of Sport, who is a past guest, because I do remember distinctly uh, the conversation with her, which basically uh, is exactly what you said, that there there's a lot of gadgets and, and stuff techniques out there. But but yeah, just doing the sleeping and the nutrition right, essentially, and is is where it's where it's at, really. Absolutely. And yeah, all, all of the papers that Shona's published, um, she had a very good review which is out in 2014 i think um would, would definitely be papers that i would recommend if people want to delve into the science in a little bit more detail yeah well uh let's move on to your main uh area of expertise which would be strength training for uh, middle and long distance runners and well first of all one thing that i'm uh, curious about to to start us off with is is there a difference in the strength training, uh, the best practice for strength training for middle versus long distance runners? 
Um, yeah, there, there are um, there are subtle differences. Um, I think it depends a little bit. I'd always hate to say it depends, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think in in this in this scenario it does. Um, I think for somebody that's a, a runner that's just starting out strength training and hasn't done any in the past, I think the programs between an athlete aiming for middle distance versus long distance wouldn't be too different. Like we want to get the fundamentals right first in terms of um, in terms of squatting patterns, hip hinging, lunging, stepping, and maybe some jumping and, and hopping type exercises. And once we've got the technique um, technique at a relatively good level on those, we can then look to progress in terms of volume and intensity. But I think once an athlete's been doing those training activities for a while, there, there is a difference, mainly because the middle distance events um, require much more anaerobic capacity and anaerobic-based qualities. And so the sorts of speeds that middle distance runners are hitting, uh, particularly in the first 200 metres and in sprint finishes of like a 1,500-metre race, are very, very close to the upper limit of, of their maximal velocity, whereas longer distance runners don't really get close to those sorts of speeds. So I'd definitely be training a middle distance runner to try to raise the ceiling of, of, of their maximal speed as much as possible. And that also brings with it slightly different stresses in terms of the muscle groups that um, uh, are susceptible to getting injured um, and the, the sorts of stresses that, that they're going to experience in training when they're doing lots of very, very high intensity sprint type work compared to a long distance runner who's probably going to be doing much more extensive uh, based interval training, for example. So would uh, the difference in the programming there be more geared towards the mid-distance runners, perhaps uh, aiming to achieve hypertrophy, or would it be more the differences be more related to the the, the velocity of contractions in the lifts, or or what would the dif- specific differences be? Yeah, I, I, I typically don't aim for uh, much change in muscle mass when I'm coaching in any sort of distance runners because e- even with the middle distances, there's this big anaerobic component, as I mentioned before, um, but the physiological basis is still very much around um, aerobic metabolism. And so they've got to carry their body mass around the running track or the, or the competitive course with them the whole time. Um, and so I try and avoid putting on any sort of muscle mass and try to make them stronger um, by adapting the nervous system essentially to, to try to produce more force. Um, but yeah, the, like I would, I would focus a little bit more on explosive resistance training with middle distance runners, particularly during the, the race season and an approach in the race season, probably include a little bit more plyometric type work, particularly specific plyometrics, like, like hopping and bounding activities and um, and muscle groups like the hamstrings are, are going to come under a slightly more strain, particularly if they're sprinting quite regularly at this sort of time of year, um, which is which is within the track season. Um, it's not to say that I wouldn't do that that type of training with longer distance runners, but it would probably be prioritised a little bit less. And <clears throat> because they're not doing quite as much sprint work, muscle groups like the hamstrings um, aren't under as quite as much stress in in the same sort of way. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and and if you would uh, kind of extend the discussion to triathletes, then also doing cycling, the the running component would be more uh, would would be similar to long distance uh, running. But but the cycling and the swimming component as well, there might would play a part in the strength and conditioning. So so what are some 
some takeaways uh, for how the triathletes might need to change things up slightly compared to just a pure long distance runner? Yeah, so uh, the evidence that strength training helps uh, performance for cycling and swimming is is fairly similar to to the running literature. I don't think there's quite as many studies, but there's still some fairly decent evidence that is beneficial for exercise economy. So how much oxygen or energy that you're using to perform a sub-maximal intensity of exercise. So whether we're talking about running, cycling or swimming, the same types of findings seem to apply. Um, in terms of the sorts of exercises that you would do, yeah, I'd vary. I'd vary a little bit. Um, like certainly for swimming, you obviously you obviously need a bit more of a, an upper body dominant bias, uh, particularly with um, with the pulling muscles. Um, so that's really important for, for swimmers. So exercises like doing pull ups, um, like doing bench press, like doing lateral pull downs, are going to be really important. And then for cycling, it's it's, it's quite a, a sort of quad dominant type activity. So doing exercises like split squats, maybe working on a leg press, um, either decline or a, a parallel leg press is really important. Um, but I don't think the fundamentals of just trying to improve um, basic human movement skill um, differs really across those three different sports. I'd still, I'd still be keen to try and get athletes moving well across the sorts of movement patterns that I mentioned before. Um, and then start building up in terms of intensity and volume and then the specificity of the exercises for um, the disciplines that we're trying to train. Yeah. Who is uh, strength training recommended for, advisable for in in terms of, yeah, it makes sense to, to do it to try to improve performance or even prevent injuries? Is it Are there differences between, for example, a beginner runner or a very advanced runner in in terms of how much they can expect to gain from doing strength training and and perhaps other factors as well that we might discuss include uh gender and and age and and so on what what do you think about those different demographical uh, attributes and how they might affect whether somebody should do strength training yeah so it's a really good question so um, the most important thing for me as a strength and conditioning coach when I first start working with an athlete is to find out what their strength training history is. And so you might have a triathlete that's been um, competing in the sport for 20 years, but they've never stepped foot into a gym before. They've never lifted any weights. They've never done any kind of plyometric training. So their strength and conditioning training age is zero. So you've, almost, you've got to treat them as a complete novice, even though they've been doing their sport for 20 years. So they've got a good background of, of kind of just general physical capacity. And so I would, I would start them out, as, as I mentioned before, by teaching them some basic squatting movements, um, how to do single leg squats or step ups appropriately, how to do lunging patterns, certainly for triathletes, how to, to pull and push with the upper body appropriately. Um, and, and probably spend quite a while on those sorts of exercises, um, initially just with body weight. And then when they're moving fairly competently, and their motor skills improving, start to increase the weight very gradually. Um, and that might take up to two, three months uh, of time before they're moving quite well. Um, with, with a more sort of advanced level athlete, so by advanced, I mean somebody that's been doing strength and conditioning for maybe several years. Um, they're obviously operating at a slightly higher volume in terms of the amount of, of strength and conditioning they're doing within a session. They're obviously lifting heavier weights, so the intensity's a little bit higher. And as, as I said before, the, the specificity of the exercise can come a little bit more into play with, with athletes that have been involved with the sport for a little bit longer. 
Um, and so I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd be looking at kind of what works for the individual as well as trying to plug gaps in their physical competency and physical deficiencies, which are, are linked to their sport as well. Um, just touching upon the research, like most research studies in this area, whether we're looking at running, cycling or swimming, uh, the studies typically take people that have never done any strength training before. And they'll generally only last up to about 12 weeks in duration, so that they're fairly short term. And we know over that sort of period of time that we can see changes in um, exercise economy, as, as I mentioned before, of between about 2 two and 8%-ish. But that's quite meaningful in terms of the performance improvement that we can get as a result of, uh, of, of that change. So what we don't really know at the moment is with more advanced level athletes that have been engaged with strength and conditioning for, for years and years, like how much more improvement that, w- that uh, we can get. Um, like I think it still definitely is possible. Like it's, it's, uh, it definitely has a positive impact, but the rate of improvement obviously slows down quite a lot. Um, and it might start playing a more important part with offsetting the risk of injury rather than trying to improve exercise economy or performance. Um, and, and, is there, and is there a case of use it or lose it there? Uh, I seem to remember uh, reading about some studies that, that found that, well, you if you if you stop doing it for, for a few weeks, then then you kind of lose those gains that you made during, let's say, 12 weeks of, of structured and the consistent strength and conditioning. So so maybe for the advanced athlete, it's they've reached a level where their running economy, for example, is better and maybe they won't get that much better but if they stop doing it they <laughs> they will yeah. uh, revert back to the to the starting point almost yeah it yeah it's exactly as you've just described so i mean what we know about detraining and there's been a few studies that have looked at this specifically with with endurance athletes is that if we stop these kind of like two to three sessions a week of of strength training then um, strength deteriorates, seems to deteriorate fairly, fairly quickly. Um, we seem to lose the nervous system adaptations fa- fairly quickly within the space of a couple of weeks. And then that obviously starts to impact upon exercise economy. So that starts to sl- slide away as well. So I guess there's two things there. It's both important to keep it going long term. And, and secondly, as, as the competition or the peak of, of an athlete's um, training year starts to approach, it's probably not wise to completely back off from strength training for more than about two weeks because we start to lose some of the adaptations that we've accrued over a long period of time. So yeah, even if we're not getting a sort of linear improvement in exercise economy and performance as a result of doing strength training, it definitely makes sense to keep it going for the, the reason that you've just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and as as you said as well, the injury prevention aspect might yeah. might be become a more important aspect there. Uh, it's just from a personal anecdotal perspective, I I do find that, for example, doing deadlifts seem to make, keep my hamstrings very nice and healthy, and then when I stop doing them, even when doing other hamstring exercises, for example. Uh, stability ball uh, yeah. hamstring curls or similar i can kind of keep them healthy but but they don't seem to do as much for me as the deadlifts that's just something that i personally have have found that seems to be the case for for me that the, the best way to make sure that they i don't get anything even remotely uh, close to a hamstring strain is to do those deadlifts yeah yeah sure and the, the, there's even been i think one or two studies that have looked to that kind of like the sort of maintenance type effect that you're describing there. So like if 
if if you're used to doing two to three strength training sessions a week, particularly during the off season, um, when you're quite a long way out from competition, instead of completely stopping, if you cut back to just doing one session a week, it actually maintains a lot of these qualities anyway. Um, so yeah, you were mentioning sort of like changing exercises. Like if you've got an exercise that works specifically well for you or a previous injury, um, it's probably best to leave that exercise in. But if you just did it once a week instead of maybe three times a week, that would probably maintain the qualities that you've built up uh, during the off-season preparation. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about, uh, well, first, let's talk about exercises. You have mentioned several already that uh, yeah. along the way, but maybe if you can just uh, list a stack of good exercises for yeah. uh, for, uh, yeah, for, for running in particular uh, that, that you think could be a part of a good strength and conditioning program. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess for strength training, so when, when I say strength training, I mean any sorts of exercises which improve the way in which we produce and express force during the skills of, of running, cycling or swimming. And the exercises mainly fall into three main categories here. So we've got heavy resistance training, which is essentially lifting uh, weights. So barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, maybe using some machines um, for no more than about eight repetitions or so. Um, secondly, we've got explosive resistance training, which is reducing the load that we that we're working with on the exercise, but trying to accelerate it very, very quickly. So trying to move as fast as we possibly can to try to improve the rate at which we're developing force, um, which is obviously a characteristic of, of running, cycling and swimming. And then thirdly, we've got plyometric exercises. Um, which are mainly relevant to running just because of the the way that skill's characterized. Um, but there's definitely advantages to doing plyometric exercises for swimmers and and, uh, and cycling as well. So plyometrics exercises are essentially things like jumping, hopping um, and bounding type type exercises. Um, so yeah, I, I can certainly expand upon any of those if you, if you want me to. I mean, with, with the resistance. Yeah, I mean, the, the exercises we would be the same i guess for the heavy and explosive just the, the way that you execute the lift would be would be different and the, and the weight so so maybe yeah expand upon some some exercises there in in those categories yeah yeah sure so with, with the heavy resistance training the, the sorts of exercises that i mentioned before like the, the squat um deadlifts and romanian deadlifts uh single leg squats step-ups lunges and um, explosive resistance training is, is slightly different because, as, as you mentioned, we're trying to accelerate through the range of movement as fast as possible with the same sorts of skills. But um, the disadvantage to doing that with conventional resistance training exercises is there's obviously an end point to the range of motion where we kind of have to decelerate and stop. Whereas you, yeah, in, in sports skills, uh, particularly running, we're accelerating through the full range and actually leaving the ground. So that's what we want to try and mimic with explosive resistance training. So doing things like jumping with weights, so either with a, bar, a light bar on our back or holding some dumbbells is really effective. Doing things like box jumps where we're jumping onto a box is, is really good. I use quite a lot of medicine ball throwing exercises with my athletes. So essentially they, they jump up in the air and release the medicine ball um, when they reach the highest point of the jump. And that's that's also quite effective for trying to develop um, rate of force development. All right, yeah, that's that's really cool and uh, and good that you clarified that that difference between the exercises. And and what about plyometrics? Uh, and w- which would be some favorite exercises in that category? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked about plyometrics because I think, I mean, certainly in my experience, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about plyometrics that people often consider it a very high intensity training activity that's only suitable for quite advanced level athletes that have been strength training for quite a long time. And even in the scientific literature, there's recommendations around like how much you should be able to back squat before you start doing plyometrics. Um, but when you actually look at the evidence, um, it's, it's not very strong at all. And there's there's been lots of studies that have used plyometrics with quite young children and very untrained people. And they don't see very many injuries and they see them get better. And as long as they're coached well, they're perfectly safe to do. So in using the same sorts of principles as resistance training, all we need to do with plyometrics is take the skills that we know that work, that are plyometric in nature, and just make sure that we're moderating the volume and intensity appropriately for the level of athlete that we're working with. So, for example, with with young athletes and children, uh, with any sorts of adults that are just starting out with strength training, just doing something like little pogo jumps on the spot, in the same sort of way that you would do um, skipping with a skipping rope, or doing some skips, uh, so some A skips or some straight leg skips, are probably enough intensity to elicit some adaptations associated with um, the stretch shortening cycle and, and how our tendons can store and return elastic energy. And if we get athletes to only do about 30 or 40 um, foot contacts, so like repetitions of those exercises, that's enough to stimulate a response. So we don't necessarily need to be jumping over big hurdles or going on and off really high boxes um, or bounding 50 metres down an athletics track because those are the sorts of activities that we'd build up to over a very long period of time. Um, so they're much more intense and, uh, and and they're much more difficult to um, to execute. And so, yeah, like I would, I would definitely use like low intensity, fairly low volume plyometrics like jumping and skipping um, with any sorts of athletes and then build up to doing depth jumps and drop jumps and jumping over big hurdles and hops and bounds for distance a few years down the line. So there's lots of exercises kind of in between all of those. Yeah. Just a quick specific question on, since you mentioned depth jumps and drop jumps, Yes. what sort of height would you recommend uh, dropping down from in those exercises? So with an athlete that's fairly new, I wouldn't go off more than about 20 to 30 centimeters. And so that step, step off the box, as soon as you hit the ground, try to spend as short a time on the ground as possible and bounce back up as, as high as you can. Um, compare it to some of my athletes that I've been working with for four or five years now. They're doing drop jumps and um, drop jumps off about 50 to 60 centimeters. So it's about double um, that kind of height. And they're able to maintain that sh the, the same short ground contact time as athletes that are going off 20 to 30 centimeters. But they've obviously built up the intensity over uh, over a period of time. Um, so yeah, hopefully that, that answers yeah. that Yeah, no, def definitely. I, I just think that's an important one yeah. because I, I see quite often that athletes go into the gym for the first time in the off season and and uh they have a new program maybe from the internet and uh and they see drop jumps and they get yeah. that 60 centimeter box and and uh yeah try start to do three sets of 10 or something something crazy like that uh and and it's just that's a very demanding exercise so i think it's important to clarify that it can and should be done from a low height when you're not uh, not used to it it's about the ground contact time as you said there yeah, exactly. And it's, I think that's often why it's useful to have 
a, a good strength and conditioning coach that is familiar with like what a drop jump should look like, like what a long ground contact time is versus a very short ground contact time. Because as you say, like like a, a beginner athlete probably could step onto a 60 centimetre box, step off it and rebound off the surface. But the technique might not be great. They might be they might spend a long time on the ground and they might not feel it at that point because it's it's not it's not a training activity like resistance training where you kind of get a, a burn in the muscle um, or it doesn't kind of feel that heavy when you're doing it. Um, the negative consequences maybe happen over time that if you're loading the wrong sorts of tissues and you're, you've got quite a poor technique, then after doing that for a succession of weeks, you might start picking up some sort of injury around the knee or the Achilles tendon, for example. And yeah, that, that would then be attributed to the fact that you've gone too high intensity too quickly on a, on a new training activity. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, as a beginner to plyometrics, you might start as low as 30 to 40 uh, ground total ground contacts in, in a, in a session in an entire plyometric set. Yeah. Uh, so how, how quickly would you be fairly comfortable uh, building that up and, and increasing the number of contacts? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't think there's any kind of rules here or, or any scientific studies that I can point you towards. Um, I think there's, there's always two things to consider. Like if you're increasing the intensity of the exercises, so you bring in a slightly higher box or the athletes being a bit quicker off the ground, um, like they've changed their intensity. So it's probably not wise to change volume at all. So just to stick with the 30 to 40 foot contacts. Um, but particularly during the off season, I would try to look to build up probably over a period of six months to about 50 to 60 foot contacts. Um, like even the athletes that I've been working with for a long time and even the middle distance runners, they don't go much higher than about 80 to 90 foot contacts within um, a single plyometric training session. Um, but the intensity is quite high uh, for, those, for those exercises. So I think that ho- hopefully gives you an idea of the range. So yeah, 30 absolutely. 40 for, yeah. for a novice, um, probably no more than about 100, even for a very well-trained athlete. But try trying to prioritize the intensity more than anything, um, and I think the reason that I'd prioritize the intensity is like running itself is is obviously plyometric, um, but it's it's obviously quite a low intensity plyometric compared to the exercises that we've been talking about here, and so if you keep it fairly low intensity and just increase the volume, you kind of you kind of like giving them the same stimulus as they're getting from running training, um, particularly high speed running training. And so it doesn't make much sense to go more the volume route because you're essentially just exposing the tissues to, to higher volumes of work that they're getting in the running anyway. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd probably keep the work higher quality and try to increase the intensity as the priority um, over time rather than just keep ramping up the volume above 100. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what would the, you mentioned with the resistance training that uh, you would typically not go above eight uh, reps in a set uh, when at least when when an athlete is is used to to the movement and start to add some weight what would the sets look like in in a plyometric session and what would the recovery be uh, between between sets yeah so for uh, in, in a plyometric training session i'd usually have between two and four exercises again d- depending depending on the athlete's stage of development um 
and yeah, the, the number of sets again would would reflect the, the sort of volume that I'm looking to achieve. So with, with beginners, they probably don't need to do more than two to three sets on an individual exercise, up to about eight repetitions again, um, typically. Um, and then with a the more advanced athlete, yeah, they go up to about six sets of, of work on a particular exercise. Again, no more than about eight, eight or so repetitions. Um, I try to keep the recoveries around about a minute or so. It depends how long the, the exercise takes. So something like hopping and bounding, um, I just get athletes to walk back very slowly. And that usually takes them at least a minute to do. And then they're fairly ready to go again. If it's something like drop jumps or depth jumps, again, we try to have like a minute, maybe two minutes between each individual set. Um, so that they're, they're close to full recovery. Um, but it's not so long that it's, it's, uh, it's taking up loads of time within the session. Yeah. So, so the total duration of a plyometric session might be roughly how long with the way that you program them? So, yeah, that's, it is a really good question that because like the, typically the way that I program, and this is a little bit more my own coaching philosophy rather than again, um, like some compelling scientific evidence that I've got to show you. Um, but the way that I typically program strength and conditioning for any sort of endurance athlete is, is what I would term like a concurrent type model. So typically when athletes arrive at a session with me, they'll do about a 10-minute warm-up, which again is quite individualized for them. And it might condition some tissues that they're recovering from an injury or they've had an injury in the past. And then they'll go into a plyometric component of the session, which will take anything from 10 minutes up to about 20 minutes with uh, with more well-trained athletes. Um, and then, then they'll tend to do the resistance training after that. And the resistance training usually takes between 20 and 30 minutes and they then finish the session uh, if they've got time with some sort of kind of injury prevention conditioning type exercises which will take about 15 minutes so i mean in, in a total strength and conditioning session they've got usually like four different components or four different training units so a warm-up a plyometric and sometimes some sprinting as well um, a resistance training component, and then some conditioning work towards the end of the session. So the total duration of the session is is usually 70 to 75 five minutes in total. Um, it's, it's not to say that you can't split those units up. So particularly with athletes that have got very busy lifestyles and can't commit to doing two strength and conditioning sessions a week, an alternative model that I've used quite a lot in the past, which is a bit more time efficient, is to go, okay, let's treat it as a plyometric training unit or a resistance training unit. And they end up doing something every single day, but it's kind of tagged on to either before or after a, a training session, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so they don't have to commit to going to the gym for like 75 minutes at a time. Um, and so with plyometrics sessions or training units in, in those situations, um, yeah, they, they tend, to, tend to last about 20 minutes or so. Yeah, great. Um, then if we talk a bit more about the programming of uh, the, the heavy and explosive resistance training as the, the next unit or next part of a total or a complete strength session. Um, so, yeah, we have that uh, the number of reps as mo at, at most eight typically, but in terms of weights and so on, maybe periodization, can you go into some, some aspects there to, to consider? Yeah, certainly. So... With an athlete that's just starting out, I would typically spend the first two or three weeks mainly just working with body weight or very light or very light resistance, 
just to try and improve coordination and, and motor control, just to ensure that they're safe. So essentially when I start adding load and we try to um, try to improve strength type adaptations, um, they're not going to get injured or they, they feel safe and competent on their own if I'm, if I'm not around. Um, so once we've gone through those first two or three weeks, they'd usually, they'd usually be working with something between 20 and 40 kilograms for an exercise like a back squat or a deadlift. Um, and then it's, it becomes very individual and kind of quite um, auto-regulated after that, that I, I tend to ask the athlete how, how they're feeling, like how did they respond after the session in terms of their soreness? Did it impact their, their running, cycling, swimming training uh, negatively? And then we'll, we'll sort of just moderate the loads based on the feedback that I'm getting and what I'm seeing in the session. Um, so some athletes can, particularly slightly stronger male athletes, they can handle quite a lot of weight quite quickly. And there's nothing wrong with pushing it up quite quickly if, if, if they're looking fine in, in the sessions. Whereas other athletes that are very new to it um, will struggle to move more than 20 to 30 kilograms for an entire six-week um, initial mesa cycle. Um, which is completely fine. It's, it's then just down to the, the individualization of training. Um, in terms of the prescription of exercises, I'd usually have three exercises initially, um, usually something on two legs. So like we've mentioned before, a squat or a deadlift, for example, and then usually a couple of exercises which um, are just unilateral in nature. Um, for triathletes, you definitely have at least a couple of upper body exercises in there as well. So kind of what you end up with is something between about eight to 12 sets of lower limb work and something between about six to six to eight sets of upper limb work if uh, if, if we're working with, with swimming as well. Um, and that would look like a, a sort of fairly complete resistance training session, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you describe the, the rationale or the thinking with having one double leg exercise and, and a couple of u- unilateral exercises there what you're trying to get several different benefits there i suppose with some some being more specific and some being less specific but maybe moving higher weights but is there a scientific rationale behind behind that yeah there is definitely so with with a bilateral exercise there's i guess there's two main advantages really like obviously we can move more load and so the the total amount of force that the entire body is producing is a little bit higher on two legs. Um, and that sort of makes sense because if we're on two feet, we're a bit more stable. We've got both the right and the left that it can contribute towards force generation. Um, and so it makes sense to, to try to improve maximal strength. So the most amount of force that the body can develop, we have to be on two feet. And so it drives maximal strength type adaptations, which, um, which seem to be quite important. Um, the second big benefit to doing bilateral exercises is they're typically structurally loaded. So what I mean by that is um, the, the external load is bearing down on the skeleton, so particularly the vertebral column. And so we get changes in bone mineral density especially, so that the strength of our bones improves, um, which offsets the risk of osteoarthritis if we're thinking about health benefits but then from a performance perspective, um, stress fractures and things like this around the pelvis and, and the vertebral column. Um, so there's, there's, yeah, there's potentially quite an important advantage there. Um, the advantage to doing unilateral, so single leg work, is obviously it's a bit more specific. And so when we're cycling and when we're running, 
and, and swimming, we're obviously needing to produce force just through one limb at a time. And so we've got that kind of biomechanical similarity, which is a little bit higher. And there's also a phenomenon known as the bilateral strength deficit. And hopefully this isn't getting too complicated or scientific, but the bilateral strength deficit essentially means that per limb, we can produce more force when we're on one leg compared to when we're on two legs, if that makes sense. So for example, if I can squat (coughs) squat 100 kilograms on two legs, what I can squat on one leg will usually be about 60. And so therefore the absolute force that I can develop is higher on two legs because that's the 100, but per leg that's 50 and 50. Whereas when I'm on one leg and I can do, if I can do 60 kilograms on one leg, it's per leg, it's higher on one, it's, it's higher unilaterally. And so there's quite a strong rationale for doing unilateral training for any type of athlete um, because of this this phenomenon known as the bilateral deficit, um, and that, that pretty much holds true across across um, most types of, of skills within strength training. Um, so yeah, a bit of combination of both sort of makes sense. But I think if we're working with athletes like cycling sw- swimmers and uh, and uh, runners that are mainly working on one leg at a time, it makes sense to have a bias towards unilateral training more than bilateral training. Mm, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and what about the distribution between the heavy resistance training and the explosive resistance training? Would you alternate sessions there? So every other one would be one and the other, or how would you uh, work that into the program? Yeah, another another really good question. It's um, I think in the early days, I'd, I'd generally leave the explosive resistance training alone a little bit, just because I want to get the, the sort of fundamental movement skills in place. And you need to move a little bit slower to kind of master those those movements. Um, but then over time, probably after the first four, five, six months, maybe with an athlete, I would start to maybe add just one exercise into the session. And so the first exercise as part of the resistance training component might be a weightlifting skill. So like a, a power clean or a snatch, um, it might be jumping with weights or it might be a box jump or something like this. Um, and then that starts to trickle in a little bit of explosive resistance type work. And you mentioned periodization before, so apologies, I didn't uh, didn't mention that. But I would I would gradually phase in more explosive resistance training type work um, as the year goes on. So as they're getting closer towards competition, they're more working on rate of force development type qualities rather than maximal strength type qualities. Um, so I, I guess an example that I've so with with an athlete that I'm working with at the moment who's um, who competes at a very high level. So as part of their resistance training that they're doing at the minute, they've got four exercises in the session. Three of them are explosive resistance training exercises because the athlete is is in their track season now, and then one of the exercises is a maximal strength exercise, literally just there to maintain those qualities. Um, and so we're not looking to try to, to to chase or improve maximal strength anymore, but we want to try and maintain what we've already built during the winter months. And so I think I think within the session, there's maybe 10 to 12 sets of work. And of those 10 to 12 sets, about three quarters of it is explosive resistance training. And then a quarter is, is maximal strength work. Got it. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a great summary. And uh, what was the other question I had on the tip of my tongue? Uh, yeah, rest and uh, rest between sets. Uh, what, what's your guidelines around that? 
Yeah, so with um, particularly when an athlete's got to a point that they're 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 loaded, so they're moving some weight in the form of barbells or dumbbells or kettlebells, I'll try to make sure that they're having close to full recovery. So again, at least two minutes. What what, what I tend to find with endurance athletes is 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 they're ready to go quite quickly, uh, just because they're endurance athletes and they recover very very quickly between um, between bouts of work. Um, and so sometimes you've got to kind of hold endurance athletes back and say, no, we're going to just rest another 30 seconds or a minute or so. Um, so yeah, at least, at least two minutes between each individual set. And when we're getting athletes up to very heavy loads, so they're a bit more experienced and they're working close to like maybe three repetitions per set, I'll be trying to encourage them to have more like three minutes if possible between sets. Um, and it sometimes lengthens the session a little bit, but it's, it's important that they have that recovery so they can keep the quality high within the sets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they need to have a, just a, a long podcast or something to listen to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. I think when, when, when they're working by themselves, it's, it's always tempting just to dive back under the bar or do the next set um, because they're getting a bit bored. Um, when, when, when I work with athletes in small groups, it's very, very easy that the rest, the recovery periods drift above three minutes if you don't keep an eye on, on on athletes because they end up chatting and like messing about a little bit, which is which is fine to some extent. But you obviously want to keep them on task, and yeah. uh, and you you want to you don't want the recoveries to drift much above three minutes. Otherwise, the session just takes ages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and in terms of the frequency of strength sessions, then we kind of already talked about. But would your recommendation be? to even three sessions per week in the in the off season and then as you get towards your race season you might drop that down to to one session per week if you just to maintain things yeah it's yeah pretty much exactly what, what you said really um again we've got some pretty good scientific evidence for this that the majority of studies seem to use two to three sessions a week like in my experience like doing three sessions a week is is usually right on the limit of what an endurance athlete's able and will, willing to do so nearly all of my runners, they'll do two sessions a week pretty much throughout the whole year. And as you said, when they enter the competition season, each week's a little bit different, I guess. If they don't have a race, they'll still try to do two sessions in, in the week. If they do have a race, um, and particularly if it's, if, if it's a bigger event, they'll only be doing one session a week. Um, and that's usually enough to maintain qualities. Yeah, for for the athletes training three disciplines, there's no way they'll do three sessions. Like, I, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. If, if if I can get two sessions a week out of a triathlete, I'm I'm very very happy with that. Yeah, I think two. I think two is probably enough, and uh, we definitely know there's benefits to two. Yeah. Um, one final question on strength training would be around the. So we, we talked about weights already and how it becomes a bit self regulated. Uh, yep. depending on soreness and and so on but but there's also the aspect of uh, to some the, the research at least seems to indicate or it is done as as you mentioned heavy resistance training it should be quite heavy so what is the balance there between uh, maybe something doesn't feel particularly heavy to you but you still get sore because you're uh, maybe you've well you've you've been off of strength training for a while or even you just tend to get sore for some reason even when you're used to it how important is it to be to be working at fairly close to your max capacity for the number of reps you're doing at the, the rep range versus just minimizing soreness for, for the following sessions. What's your philosophy around that? Yeah, it is a, it is a real balance as you're kind of alluding to with the question. Um, 
like again for me like it sounds quite obvious but the, the most important training for a triathlete is is obviously their their running swimming and cycling um and so like for me that that's got to be the priority um and as yeah as as as, as much as I know strength training is important and I'm a strength and conditioning coach and that's kind of the bit of the training that I have, I have to take care of, you, you can't lose sight of the fact that the sports training is the thing that's going to get them better and get them to the start line in the sort of shape and condition that they want to be. Um, and the strength training is just supplementary a little bit to that and and will provide us a small benefit. Um, and, and so like my own philosophy and usually this is the same as the technical coach is to is, is to make sure that they're ready for the key sessions of the week and so if they've got a, a really really key interval training session or a session at um functional threshold intensity on the bike or whatever like the, the athlete needs to be ready to perform in those sessions because those are going to be the key ones that really drive the adaptations related to their sport and if there's anything else in the training, including strength training, that detracts from that, um, then we need to modify the training a little bit. Like I do definitely work with coaches that don't have that philosophy. Um, so what I mean by that is they will modify the running training to accommodate more strength training at certain times of, of, of the year, particularly during the off-season, because they want the athlete to be stronger and more robust. So if it means changing like a hill session or changing an interval session and reducing the pace so they can do a little bit more strength work then they'll do that um, because they're very very bought into um, uh, the benefits of strength training so again I, I then have to sort of change my own approach a little bit to, to make sure that they're getting the most the possible out of the strength session as they can so I can push the volume up a little bit and push the intensity and I don't need to worry quite as much that they're getting sore because the coach doesn't really care at that time of uh, at that time of year um so yeah I think uh, I think the main thing is just communication with the athlete and and keeping in touch with them in terms of uh, in terms of how they're feeling after the session how much soreness they're, they're experiencing um I think the other thing worth mentioning very briefly is uh, endurance athletes will often get sore after they lift and do resistance training and that soreness ends up becoming a bit more psychological in terms of how it impacts the session um, than than physical and so quite often an athlete will say I was, I was so sore after resistance training but I had one of the best sessions on the track that I've ever had and usually they start warming up and they're quite they're, they're quite slow moving and they're quite stiff initially, but once they've finished the warm up, the, the soreness has kind of disappeared, um, and then they do the session and they feel great. Um, and so I, I think some of the time it ends up becoming a bit of a psychological barrier for athletes that they think they're fatigued, but they're actually not. It's just a bit of residual soreness in the muscles. Mm, yeah, yeah, th those are all good points. And uh, can can we? Uh... Can we basically make a statement that even if you're not lifting at your absolute maximum, you still get benefits from strength training? If you if you hold back a bit so that you don't get soreness, it, it's still a beneficial session. You don't have to be be at at the limit to to benefit. Yeah, from. yeah, hundred percent. I think that that is a really good message. That um, like typically when I've when I'm getting the athletes to to lift within sessions, they're working at about seven or eight out of ten in each individual set. So they're not going to repetition failure, uh, in other mm -hmm. words. 
Um, and they rarely go to repetition failure at any point in the year as well. Yeah. Um, and so they can definitely feel it working. It's like, oh, I've probably only got like a couple of repetitions in reserve or I could only go for a couple more repetitions in that set. Um, but I'm not at the limit. I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not pushing to the absolute limit here and squeezing out every single rep. So they're not bodybuilders where they're doing like every set to exhaustion. Um, they're just trying to, they're trying to get an overload and a stimulus through the nervous system and the muscle, and and uh, yeah, and, and then they're stopping short of, uh, of of complete fatigue. Yeah, perfect. Well, I think that was a great uh, discussion and a great uh, great extensive review of uh, what we know about strength training and and the practical aspects of implementing a strength and conditioning program for endurance athletes. Uh, what I want to do now is just. Uh, Take a, a few quick fire questions where you can decide how much you want to discuss around each of these. And basically, I've picked a few topics from the, the book chapters of the science and practice for middle and long distance running. And then, then we can see if we dive, dive deeper into any of them uh, or not. But, uh, but if you can just summarize your thoughts on these topics at a high yes, level. Yeah. And, and let's start with tapering and peaking. Yeah, so t- tapering and peaking is, is really important. Um, most of the research on tapering and peaking has actually been done in endurance athletes and, and triathletes specifically. So there's not loads of research that's looked at um, less frequent training. So i.e. if you're just doing two strength training sessions a week. Um, but there's there's definitely some key rules or principles that emerge from the literature. Um, the, one of the main ones being that it's important to maintain training frequency right up until your main peak or your main competition that, that you're trying to, to aim for. Um, so if you train, so if a triathlete trains, I don't know, 10, 10 times a week, it's important that right up to the competition, they're maintaining that routine. So they're training still 10 times a week, right up until their, uh, until their competition. So what changes is the volume of work with it, which is in each of those individual sessions. And so the volume um, needs to reduce by about 50 to 60% of what's normal over a period of about seven to 14 days. So about a week or two. Um, And the drop in that volume needs to be what we call exponential. So in other words, if a triathlete is doing, trying to just make it, making up the numbers here a little bit. If a triathlete is doing two hours of training per day, every single day of the week, in the final few days before their competition, that needs to be cut in half. And so they're, they're maintaining their frequency, but they're only doing an hour of, of training. Um, and so if we if we back up like two weeks before that, that initial drop needs to be fairly quick. So they need to drop down to not doing two hours a day, but doing maybe an hour and a half a day, and then an hour and a quarter, and then an hour in the final few days before competition. Um, and then the, fi- the final key principle is to maintain or slightly increase intensity. And so if you've got key training sessions within the week, particularly interval training sessions, the number of repetitions you do comes down because that's the volume being cut in half. But the, the pace that you're doing the intervals at needs to stay the same or slightly increase. Um, and that seems to be an, a, another really important kind of rule of, of tapering. Yeah, what's your uh, what's your take on the specificity of uh, of pace or power in those intervals in the taper period? Let's say you're a marathon runner, uh, would you have them go significantly above their target marathon pace, or would you 
focus on on keeping things around marathon pace there because I've, I've, there are a couple of different schools of thoughts here and i've certainly used both methods either doing some pretty high intensity in tape in the taper period or focusing mostly on keeping things around race specificity which especially for long distance triathletes isn't very fast at all uh, so yeah, what's your thoughts? yeah and I, I think this is a bit of a sort of philosophical one in a way i don't think there'd be any science to say that one way is better, better than the other necessarily I think with most high-level marathon runners, they'd, they'd usually do at least one session a week, which is faster than marathon speed, pretty much all year round. So in the final month or so before a major marathon, they'd definitely have that type of session in there. So let's say the marathon was on a Sunday. The previous Tuesday, if they're usually doing a session at 5K, 10K type intensity, I would leave that sort of session in there. But the volume of the session is, as I, as I mentioned before, probably almost cut in half or about two thirds of what they'd normally do. So if it's usually something like six times five minutes at 10 K intensity, it's more like three times five minutes at, yeah, maybe somewhere between five K and 10 K intensity. So the volumes are a lot less, but the intensity is the same or, or slightly higher. And they've still yeah. got then five days that they, to recover from that type of session anyway. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. The, the challenge in triathlon is that you uh, kind of, or at least I tend to want to do, well, a key session in race week in each discipline, in swimming, biking, and running. Yeah. Depending on the athlete, it might be even be, there might be a couple of harder swims there. Yeah. So so then when you do that, the choice becomes, well, do you f- focus each of those sessions on being around race race pace or should one or a few of them go higher than race pace because you don't have two hard workouts or two intense workouts in each discipline necessarily to play with that might be a bit too much in the taper period so so you kind of have to take a decision there uh, yeah, you, yeah yeah but, but that's yeah that's just a typical that's what one of those problems with programming triathlon which is always a bit different compared to uh, to single uh distant discipline sports that, yes it is uh, yeah. Do, yeah really difficult to juggle everything <laughs> yeah um uh, okay so the next topic i would like to ask your thoughts around is uh, physiological uh, assessments or metabolic testing yeah and this this uh, I, I guess my answer to this might sound a bit controversial <laughs> or contradictory as to what's in the book but I, th- I think it's i think for for runners and triathletes it's 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 a really useful and interesting area um so if you get the opportunity to go to a university or a scientific laboratory and have your VO2 max measured, your exercise economy, um, calculate where your, your thresholds occur, so your lactate threshold and maybe even your, your critical power or, or critical speed, it's useful and interesting, but it's perhaps not completely essential. Um, and that's that's mainly because we, like you, and you'll know this from your own coaching, you can often kind of figure out where these thresholds are, are occurring just based upon the way that an athlete responds within an individual training sessions um, and even their rating of, of perceived exertion. Um, I think it's also useful for athletes from a sort of motivation and just tracking progress perspective that if they can get periodic physiological assessments done every few months, they can see that their VO2 max has gone up a little bit or their economy's improved or they've moved their blood lactate curve over to the right slightly. And that, that gives a sort of sense of satisfaction and motive, like it provides motivation um, for the goal that, you, that you're trying to achieve. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And and also, if the athlete is working with a coach, as a coach, you can see how your how the programming worked, how the training yeah. worked, and uh, make some some inference from from that. But uh, but yeah, it's not necessarily uh directly useful to prescribe paces for example because if the test is done on the treadmill and uh, compared to running outdoors it's a, it's a bit different and and same with yeah especially if you go onto an exercise bike that is not your own bike which yes that's i think that's do that, yeah um okay so final uh question on on these topics is uh training monitoring yeah it's a r- really topical area this and as, as you all know, there's there's lots of bits of software and apps and different gadgets that come out which claim to do a whole bunch of different stuff and be really sensitive at, at uh, assessing your fatigue status and readiness to perform a certain session. Um, I think, again, just <laughs> it's a quite an, an unscientific answer, but working with a very good coach and having a very good relationship and open channels of communication with that coach is probably the most important thing. Um, because if if you can communicate with a coach regularly in terms of how you're feeling, how you're recovering from really hard key sessions within a week, and how prepared you are for other sessions, as well as, I guess, kind of just listening to your own body and being tuned into your own body, that's the best way to kind of monitor your physiological state of, of fatigue and and preparedness uh, to train. Um, so yeah, it's not a very scientific answer. I think the the other thing that we the, the other area that that is very effective is is just keeping a basic training diary um, that tracks your training workload in terms of the volume and intensity. Probably again, rating of perceived exertion from sessions, and then you can kind of quantify day on day and week on week how your training's progressing, just to make sure that you're not progressing too quickly and you don't suddenly ramp up intensity or volume, which is, is then generally associated with increasing the risk of, of getting an injury. Um, so I think those two things are the most important beyond all of the technology that we can potentially use. Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. And uh, the final question before we get into the rapid fire questions is if you can give three pieces of advice, three tips, uh, it can be anything uh, for amateur runners or triathletes uh, that want to improve their performance, what would those tips be? I think firstly, to to set um, medium to long-term realistic goals that you can work towards. I think if training isn't based around goals, it ends up just being a little bit random and not very well organized and and then that brings with it like risks of injury uh, potentially again like trying to work with an experienced coach to set those goals is, is also really important I think this, the second thing is just to aim for consistency in training um, it's, it's usually sort of described as this kind of cardinal principle of training that we need to be as, as consistent as possible um, so, so essentially what I mean by that is it's more important to just train every single day and every single week, week on week, month on month, year on year. Um, because we know that if an athlete's on the sidelines with injury or illness, then they're obviously not going to improve. So it's more important to be consistent than try to chase what, whatever time it is you're, you're looking to hit in training or just progress for the sake of progressing, just because you feel like you need to progress every session or every single week. Um, and like keeping things the same is maybe better than 
trying to chase progressions too frequently um, and not being afraid to take rest days as part of that as well. Um, and I think the third thing, obviously, because I'm <laughs> slightly biased in this area and we've discussed it a lot as part of the podcast, is to try and include some strength training, um, both to try and enhance your performance and reduce the risk of, of, of developing injury. Great. No, those are all, all really great uh, tips. Uh, really, I really like them. And uh, now let's uh, go into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Yeah, there's uh, there's lots of these. <laughs> um, I think probably the best book that I've ever read is a very old one now, actually, uh, which was written by Herb Elliott's coach, who was the 1960 Olympic 1500-meter champion. Um, also held the world record for 1500 in the mile as well, um, which is called How, How to Become a Champion by uh, yeah, Percy, Percy Cerutti um, is the author's name. Um, I've got the original of that book, but I, th- I think you can still purchase a sort of newer version of it. Um, I think if people are interested in the, some of the science that we've spoken about, particularly some of the exercise physiology, there's a, there's a new YouTube channel um, which has been put together by a physiologist called Mark Burnley, um, who previously worked at the University of Kent and is, is, is actually now based near Loughborough. But he breaks down a lot of the quite complex physiology associated with training zones um, and trying to understand the physiology of endurance performance in, in a really simple way with quite short short videos. I've been watching quite a lot of those recently, which is why it's fresh fresh in my mind. Um, so I definitely um, recommend that for any listeners that are interested in the, the science and the physiology of endurance sports. Yeah, th- those are great. Uh, I I hadn't heard about that uh, that book by uh, by Percy Cerati, but uh, that sounds really cool. And uh, Mark Burnley is a past guest on the podcast as well. Oh, so, is he? Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> small word. Small word in the in the in the endurance sports world. Yes. Uh, then next one. Who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, I was I was trying to think whether it would be better to pick somebody professionally or uh, or somebody from the sports world. Um, like certainly, as when I was a young athlete growing up, I read a lot of books about uh, distance running in the nineteen eighties. So particularly Sebastian Coe and Steve Overt, and that they were incredibly inspirational. Um, probably meant I ended up doing more training than I should have done <laughs> to, at a young age. Um, and yeah, I think professionally, it's I've, I find it I find it quite difficult to pinpoint an individual because I think yeah, just just credit to all of the colleagues that have, I've worked with in the past, particularly at St Mary's University, and then at the moment, some of the professors that I'm working alongside at Loughborough have all been in, incredibly influential in terms of my own development. So so learning things and shaping my philosophy as a coach. Um, so yeah, all all ex colleagues and current colleagues, I think. <laughs> Right. And finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, yeah, I think a couple of things. So as I've mentioned before, I think just being consistent with both your training and work and not trying to push too hard when you shouldn't um, and not worrying too much if you need to take rest and extra rest and recovery. And I think just in terms of my professional life, just making sure that you, you have balance um, that I've been guilty in the past of working very, very long hours, um, like more than 12 hours a day, just because, well, partly I enjoy it, partly like you feel like you should be getting everything done to a very, very thorough level. But I have a little bit more balance these days. Uh, so spending time with family, 
making sure I'm not doing more than a sort of nine to five job and I'm able to get in my own exercise and training and uh, get some decent sleep as well. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And uh, finally, you mentioned that you're active on Twitter. Uh, so can you tell the listeners wh where they can follow you, what your handle is, and if there's any other, other social media or, or even a website or something where, where they can follow you? Yeah, my handle on Twitter is at rich underscore Blagrove, spelled B-L-A-G-R-O-V-E. Um, I don't really have any other social media accounts. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I am on Instagram, but I tend to only use that to, to post pictures of, uh, of my kids. So <laughs> I don't think that's really what uh, triathletes or physiologists are that interested yeah. in. Really. <laughs> Twitter is perfectly fine. I'll, I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, and then your book, uh, I just want to plug it again, The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running. Uh, it's on, on Amazon and I guess all the major retailers both online and and some physical stores perhaps so uh but that's the name i'll put a link in the show notes as well so people can go and, and check that out yeah thanks very much for plugging that i really appreciate it no problem thank you for uh taking the time to come on the podcast and uh and share your knowledge with us it was uh, it was a great pleasure richard no problem at all i really really enjoyed the discussion and thanks again for the invitation I hope you enjoyed that interview with Richard. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll have links to Richard's Twitter and ResearchGate profiles, as well as his books, uh, the newly released, co-edited by Richard uh, book called The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running, and an older book, Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running, authored by Richard. I'll also link to the Strength Training episode archives. You can check out previous episodes on this same topic if you're interested in digging deeper. If you're looking to take your triathlon training to the next level, don't hesitate to check out our products and services on scientifictriathlon.com. Whether you're looking for a ready-made training plan or full-on individual coaching, uh, no matter what your goals, uh, level and budget is, we have you covered with uh, anything from coaching to ready-made training plans. So check that out and don't hesitate to reach out if you're interested uh, to learn more. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, and increase your swim stimulus frequency even when you can't go to the pool or open water. You can get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.